Welcome to Just a GP. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I'm here with my co-host Charlotte Hesby. Today we're talking with Mary Beth McIsaac and Mary Beth has been on the New South Wales and ACT RACGP faculty and she's currently doing a stint with the Royal Flying Doctors Service out in Broken Hill. So she's dialing in from the airport out there and we might be interrupted by uh, planes instead of dogs today. So I'm going to interrupt because she is actually currently the deputy chair for the New South Wales ACT RACGP. Excellent. So we always start with a highlight of the week and you get to begin. Okay, wonderful. I've had lots of highlights this week. So I think with the easing of restrictions in New South Wales, I've had lots of dinners out and I've had um, coffee with friends and the other night it was my friend's birthday and I took her present to her house and I was able to sit in her living room and see her open her present and when it was my birthday a couple of months ago we couldn't do that because we were in lockdown so that was a lovely thing to just be able to do this week it's really refreshing to be able to go out and do things that we never would have thought twice about before. There's something really interesting about how pretty much the whole of society has had to reflect on how important social connection and the people we care, like having time and presence with the people that we care and love about is so important to us as humans. Yeah, well, my highlight is a bit on a similar front, Mary Beth, because today we've had my work practice team's Christmas party and, of course, We haven't been able to do anything like that for a long time and we at work are still all wearing masks and sort of self-isolating in our rooms. We're being very cautious because we do have coronavirus still around us and so we just need to make sure that the practice doesn't ever get shut down or doctors get affected. So it was so weird but so lovely. We went to a croquet club. We decided to do an outdoor party, so croquet club, and we had lunch in an outdoor venue so we could all have our masks off without worrying about it and had a meal together and played croquet. And it was just so fun and lovely being sort of normal again, but also celebrating being part of a fabulous team that's gotten through a pretty hard time. Well, my highlight was exactly one week ago was my 10-year wedding anniversary. And despite my initial plans, which were to go on a hike in Queensland for the whole week, (laughs) being cancelled because of the Queensland border, um, we were able to go down to the Hunter Valley and have a little bit of some time away before rescheduling to do the same hike next year in March and hoping and crossing our fingers that it will still be able to go ahead. Congratulations. Thank you. So this podcast has been a long time coming. I think this is our fourth reschedule of this particular recording. (laughs) So we're clearly all very busy and it's, it's hard to get us all in the room at once. So And can I say that despite that, it's the fourth time, we're still missing Beck because she's supposed to be here as well, but currently she's stuck in a car 
in 20 kilometres away from home with the car not moving anywhere and no computer to be able to pull over to the side and join in. So it is just the three of us instead of the plan four. We wanted to have Mary Beth on to chat because recently, as of last year in August, she has started working with the Royal Flying Doctors Service and we just wanted to chat to her about what that experience was like and and why and how does that fit with your your greater plan of life in particular your passion for quality but let's yeah let's just hear about the why and what it's been like in such a a weird time to to move as well yes it has been yeah so i suppose I started out in rural general practice because I trained in a rural program in Canada. And so I've been working for the past 10 years in suburban Sydney, but it's not necessarily what I had trained to do. And my husband and I always talked about moving to a rural area at some point, but in probably May or June of last year, my husband took a job in Broken Hill. Uh, So that prompted the move. And I contemplate it because you sort of build your practice and you build your connections. And it takes you a long time to do that when you move to a new country. And I sort of built up a lot of things in southeastern Sydney, really put down roots there. And so I wasn't really sure what exactly I was going to do. And then he saw the job with the Royal Flying Doctor Service and sort of sent to me. It's really funny because I didn't think that I could work for the RFDS. And because I didn't, more than 10 years ago, I I worked in an emergency department in Canada, but I didn't have any recent emergency skills. I was very solidly a suburban GP. And I can remember having all of these conversations with the person that interviewed me saying, I can't do anesthetics. I don't have any emergency skills. I can't remember the last time I've done a chest tube. Like I'm, I'm not going to be very useful in an emergency situation. But what I didn't know is that the Royal Flying Doctor Service for at least the past five years, probably more, has had a real focus on primary health and chronic disease and is actually moving in that direction. So I was coming to work in the GP service, which is general practice. It's general practice in some really exciting remote locations, but it's still general practice. It's still the day-to-day work of general practice. I'm not out there intubating people or anything like that. There is a retrieval service that does all of the things that you would traditionally associate it with with the RFDS, but I don't work for that side of it. I work for the general practice side. Interesting. So in your role, are you flying to communities and being the primary GP that's visiting those communities or are you supporting existing medical services? So we fly to 17 communities across the far west of New South Wales, parts of southern Queensland and parts of the northern part of South Australia. And for those communities, we are the GP that's going into that community. We have a service schedule, which means that some communities we fly or drive to three times a week and some communities were there maybe once a month, but we are the general practice service. We also operate a 
general practice within Broken Hill called the Clive Bishop Medical Centre. And so I split my time between the Clive Bishop Medical Centre flying to remote communities. And because I'm in a management position, it's overseeing our registrars, uh, the doctors that work here, and also a little bit of research and a little bit of teaching and new programs and working on program design and things like that. So I have a really interesting mix of things that I do, actually. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so we're looking at a number of new kind of projects. Really excitingly, we're moving into some really great chronic disease management. And we're working on a project that we've kind of titled Repeat Presentation to Retrievals. But we're looking at how we can better link in the retrieval service with the primary care service. We have a phone line called the Medical Advice Line where our patients that live very far out of town can ring the retrieval service for advice after hours or in hours if they're in an emergency. And what we're trying to understand is what the pattern of use is of that service and if there are people who frequently use that service and how we can better link in that group of people into general practice services because we offer general practice services through the same kind of area as the retrieval service. But we think that we can probably improve care by looking at how we can better service those patients. So for you, what has that sort of meant that's sort of different from what you've done before? I still have registrars. I'm still teaching. I'm still doing general practice work. I think the, the flying every now and again is, is new, but really that's your commute to work. I think it's different in that uh, I'm, I'm definitely doing more research and have more dedicated time to education than I did before. That's certainly a change. It's a bit different being in a managerial role because I haven't been in a management role before. So it's things that I never would have thought about, but making sure that the services are covered and signing off on leave and those sorts of things are a little bit different. They're not skills that I, I would have necessarily used in Sydney. So that's a bit of a different skill set and definitely something new to, to learn. And then also thinking about so I have a, a master's degree of public health, but I'm finding that increasingly I'm able to put that to use because we're constantly thinking about how do we improve our service and how do we how do we improve the health outcomes for patients that use the service? And, and that's a little bit different from what I was doing in, in general practice. It's not as much the day-to-day -day work. It's more thinking holistically, but about whole communities. It is. It's sort of... There's a sort of a freeing up on one hand, but then giving you some new roles on another, isn't it? So opening up some other opportunities to what you can do. Yes. What about the money side of things? Do you have to generate Medicare or are you free to just think about the service provision? So my role is 40% clinical. So the other days, I'm, I guess I'm funded differently. The RFDS is, is a mixed funding model. So do you have to, when you're doing your general practice work, is that under MBS billings? In the Clive Bishop Medical Centre it is, yes. Yeah. And is that similar structure to, say, being a contractor and getting a percentage of your billings or do you get paid for doing the work but you generate the income for the practice? Yeah, so you're paid for the day that you work. It's different because... 
So it is a bulk billing general practice, but the Clive Bishop Medical Centre services a community that is very high needs. Broken Heel as a community, there's, I don't want to generalise, but there's some fairly low health literacy. There's high rates of substance use. There's certainly not high socioeconomic status. There's high rates of chronic disease. The west of New South Wales, I think, has some of the highest rates of chronic disease in the country. So it's a different uh, demographic that you're seeing. And philosophically, it's about providing care to that population. It's not a high throughput practice because as some bulk billing practices are because you can't rush patients through when they have such high needs and such complex care as what we see. So it's a classic example of where Medicare really doesn't cover for the needs of the population because you do need longer consultations and the longer consultations are so poorly remunerated. Yes, yes. So we do tend to have a lot of long consultations just out of necessity and it's not necessarily fair to be paying GPs based on a percentage billing structure when you know that they're not going to be remunerated well for doing for doing that and spending the time that's actually required. Yeah, so there's, you have to take a pragmatic approach. So how many GPs are there in town, say in Broken Hill? How many of you? I don't actually know. Um, there's probably four or five different surgeries, but I don't know how many are at each surgery. I'm sorry. I haven't lived here long enough. I think and it's been COVID time, so we haven't had any face-to-face education to actually see the other GPs in town. So I'm just interested in terms of the RFDS, you were saying that they've got a vision now for primary care. So does that mean that part of what their vision for their services is that they are indeed flying GPs out to all of these remote areas to run clinics in those spaces and they're trying to then tailor the amount of time that you're there face-to-face according to what that community seems to need, but then you can then do telehealth and video if needed for other times? Yes, so we offer telehealth to any of our patients. And I think probably RFDS was some of the original telehealth providers. They were doing telehealth in the days of kind of radios, radioing back and forth to stations and things. So we we try to provide the best possible care to communities based on community need and based on numbers of patients and and the need that's there. We do have new nurse-led models and multidisciplinary models that will drive out to communities in between the general practice visits and they work to particular KPIs. So they will record things like blood pressures and weights and take fasting blood tests and uh, try to identify any particular issues that a patient has. And then in follow-up, when you're there for the general practice clinic, you have the notes and the information that the nurse has provided for you or the other allied health provider has provided for you to kind of work with and and move forward with so that you're not always having to do everything every visit yourself. Are you using a remote platform that also sort of helps connect up different services to talk to each other? All of our sites are actually linked together. We, we have best practice uh, clinical software and it's at any site. You have a laptop or you have a um, desktop computer that links right into the, the real-time notes. So the main database. Yeah. So it's sort of a, a really good time in terms of the opening up of innovative care and different models, isn't it, in terms of being able to use what, as you say, the RFDS 
has done so well for so long but has really been unrecognised in the value of that maybe being moved into other places as well. I think the philosophy now is, yes, the retrieval service, and that's that's wonderful and not to be underestimated. The retrieval service is incredible and they do some incredible things, but we're trying to really use general practice and chronic disease service as best we can so that patients don't need the retrieval service as often. Absolutely. I mean, the, the idea with that you wouldn't, re- well, you'd only need it for those sorts of emergency accidents rather than anything else, which are always going to happen. Yes, that's the hope. So in terms of, you know, for you as a, as a, a lifestyle, you were saying you're doing research as well. So tell us a little bit what research looks like out there. Yeah, so it's, look, I think it's really interesting. We, we think that the multidisciplinary model that is doing chronic disease in between the general practice visits is somewhat unique and so we're really looking at studying that and seeing how that actually works and aligns and what are the outcomes that we can achieve doing that and as I mentioned before we're looking at how we can better serve patients that frequently access the retrieval service via phone to see how we can serve them a bit better as well and so we're getting an understanding of really the access to the medical advice line as a whole. So why do people ring? How often do they ring? How many times would be considered a large number of times? And and just seeing what that actually looks like. And then with the plan to actually really implement it quite quickly, if we can see that there are things that we can be doing in the, the primary care service to really link that in. Is it quantitative or qualitative? Quantitative. So we have data from the past 10 years, sort of routinely collected data, phone calls, uh, reasons for visit and things like that. So it's quantitative and we're really trying to get an understanding of how, how frequently someone might call. And for example, a reason for contact might be asthma. Is there a grouping of asthma calls, you know, that are clustered together, followed by a retrieval or sort of things like that and trying to get a sense of the patterns and things. I have a question around your lived experience personally. But before I ask about that, I think it'd be interesting to go, is there any scope in this research for looking at the qualitative side of the lived experience of the communities to match the quantitative data? Yes, well, we're really at the beginning of this research project. It came about less than a year ago when I identified in conversation with one of the retrieval doctors that you know, there was a patient that had rung a number of times but had never actually linked into primary care. And it was for something that I thought, you know, I actually probably could have seen that patient and managed them, but I never knew that they were calling. If thinking about, how, well, how do we do that better? And so we thought we'd understand the quantitative picture first and then use that to kind of generate questions that we might later use as a stepping off point for qualitative research. I imagine though you've got some qualitative data already or haven't you been collecting any in terms of patient experience and how they connect with the service and who who does and doesn't use the service and why? So we continually evaluate the service but we don't use that data as research data we use that as just evaluating and improving. So we've got huge systems sitting in the background that look at patient satisfaction and 
reporting and reporting on how the service is running and operating. And there's a huge community engagement program that seeks to go out into the community and see how can we do things better. But we use that for our own internal purposes. It's not the basis of, of research. That's just our continual improvement process. So I'm interested what it's like as a GP from your perspective working one day a week in general practice and then in one location and then sort of having the rest of the week elsewhere. And the reason I'm asking is I certainly find that I struggle with anything less than three days a week in the one practice and I'm currently doing two days a week of regular general practice and I'm feeling like there's a bit of a pinch point around it's not, it doesn't feel quite enough to provide that sort of more regular service as being the person's GP. But I have worked in roles before where I have done one day a week in general practice, but I haven't then, that's been for a specific service such as Headspace or Women's Health. And in those services, we were never considered the person's primary GP. It was sort of having a general practice service that was complementing any primary care that was happening. And personally, I found that always a bit difficult in terms of disruption of continuity, et cetera. So I'm interested in terms of what it's like for you sort of doing a, like a little bit of general practice in lots of different areas rather than having that continuity in the same practice. Look, most of my clinical work is in Broken Hill. I think I probably set when I see a patient and they say, because I'm relatively new, you know, are you happy to take me on as your GP? I probably tell people initially, I am, but I'm here at the most two days a week. I'll never be here more than two days a week. And so they have that understanding that I'm here, but I'm not necessarily here all the time. And and sort of setting that boundary early. I book my own follow-ups with patients. So if I have someone that I want to see in follow-up, I tell them when I'll be back and I book that follow-up myself. I think the fact that I'm generally around or on site probably makes it a bit easier because I'm still checking my results in between sort of seeing patients. Like even if I'm on a non-clinical day, I still check my results. Some of the patients might be coming to see one of my registrars. And so I know what's going on and I can follow up. Or if a patient is seeing one of my colleagues and I know them, then I can easily kind of pop in and, and support that. So it's a little bit of a luxury if you're going to be working non-clinical to be mostly on site where the clinical work is taking place, even if it's not you sort of personally doing it. So I suppose I'm in a rather privileged position. It's not like I'm completely out of the service when I'm not clinical. It's a bit similar to the role I have in terms of doing academic as well as being a practice owner and and being two days a week in my practice as well. So I sort of relate to it. There's the elements for me, I like the different roles that I have. I agree with you 100% Ash that two days is a little bit frustrating and I think the third day would always make a difference but I also struggle because I just can't get that third day. If I could manufacture an extra day in my life then I could do it but it just you know it just doesn't seem to work particularly at the moment with all the other work that I do and it is just enough. And I mean I come from having a long established 
network of patients. So, you know, I think the ones who are willing to bear with me cope. Those who haven't been willing to cope with that have moved to somebody else within the practice. And then when they get to see me, that's it's lovely and we go high and we catch up and we do all of that sort of stuff. But whereas for you, Mary Beth, it's sort of quite nice because you're starting out, this is this is where I'm at, this is what I can do. And actually for chronic disease management, two days a week is is actually completely fine. It's just you're not there for every acute incident that might happen. But then you're not there for every acute incident for three days a week either. We just have to have the sense you can provide continuity, you can provide really good structure and systems in two days. You just can't be the the be-all and end-all, which is probably better for us wellbeing-wise, isn't it? Probably. So you were talking about research. I just am wondering if I can talk about some non-RFDS research that I've done. It's a project that I was mostly finished before I started here. So we're here to talk to you, Mary Beth. So whatever you have exciting for our listeners is very, very welcome. Okay. So I, um, and I think it kind of relates a little bit closer to the work that I am really passionate about, which is quality and quality improvement in general practice. And it sort of goes back to moving to Australia in 2010 and having to get used to a new system and trying to learn a new system really quickly, which was really difficult because I moved to a small practice and there was only one other GP and he had just moved from Hong Kong two months before. So we really together had to figure out the Australian system. And so what I did was I went to a lot of teaching events that were put on by my division of general practice at that time. And I learned a lot from the discussions that I had with the GPs that I met there, because I have to say, I didn't know how to send a patient for a pathology test. I didn't know anything about the Australian system. So I learned nearly everything from those poor GPs that I went to the education uh, events with and from just making a lot of phone calls uh, to various places to see if anyone could help me. But it really sparked uh, an interest since that time in peer group learning and probably in so in 2017 and 2018 there was a lot of discussion about the QI PIP because that was the new idea that was coming in and also about quality in general practice and I really balked at the idea of external bodies trying to define general practice quality and especially using kind of narrow quantitative metrics because I really felt that quality is something that's defined by us as GPs. It shouldn't be someone that doesn't have a knowledge of general practice that tells us what general practice quality is. And I especially got frustrated by the mantra that if you can't measure it, you can't improve it because I thought there's plenty of things that we improve but don't necessarily measure during our process of improvement. The timing was such that the Future Leaders course was being put on by the RSGP. So I signed up for that and I wanted to make it my focus that I would focus on quality improvement in general practice and, and the QI PIP in particular. We all know that the QI PIP still came into force with its interesting kind of metrics that were attached to it. But I ended up at GP18 and was chatting about general practice quality and how it was more than what was just measurable. It was actually about what is really important 
and not necessarily what's easily measured. And I ran into Jared Ingham, who was just amazing. He's this medical educator sort of based in Victoria. And we found that we were thinking about similar things. And we collaborated with a researcher by the name of Rebecca Kippen, who's a non-GP researcher. And what we wanted to do was focus on improvement in practice that wouldn't rely on having a metric. So it didn't have to rely on something quantitative to show that you were improving. And what we did was we looked at using random case analysis, which is technique that's used in registrar training. It's something that we run through a case with our registrar and go through the reasoning and things. But what we decided to do with random case analysis was to really expand it to a peer group learning tool. And what we focused on in terms of the research was looking at the acceptability of doing that in a general practice team meeting where it's different from being a registrar one-on-one with the supervisor. It's actually a group of your peers. And did GPs find that acceptable? And what were the conditions to make it more comfortable and and how could we actually do that? So what we did was we tried it in our own practice, did qualitative interviews on how comfortable the GPs felt in doing it and was it a useful tool and what kinds of questions would facilitate really good learning. And we developed a manual on how to do it, which was really, we think, helpful. And along the way, there were the changes that I'm sure you're aware of from the medical board, which is focusing on performance review. And so I guess serendipity was that we were able to get this approved as a performance review tool as well, but it's not external performance review, it's performance review with your peers in a setting in which you hopefully feel comfortable. So last month it got published in the Australian Journal of General Practice, just the sort of how-to and referring to the manual itself. That's something that I, I guess I'm extraordinarily proud of because I feel that it's something that we've pushed forward and that will hopefully be really useful to the profession. It's improving your quality and your, your general practice, but through reflection and feedback from your peers. Let's push that a little further then, Mary Beth. Fantastic job, well done. A great achievement. Nothing better than actually sort of seeing some vision and carrying through with it. So now you've got a tool. How are you going to implement it? Look, I think that's more difficult. So one of the things that we did was we worked with the college, with the RICGP, as we were developing it because we wanted it to be an accredited activity. We wanted it to be worth CPD points. And we wanted to make sure that whatever we were developing was, I guess, robust enough to qualify as an appropriate tool for use. And so in the CPD manual, the triading manual, it's actually listed as one of the activities that you can use for reviewing performance. I think that inclusion was quite important. Um, We've tried to disseminate through publication. I think it's difficult to to ask people to sort of start something or try something new. But we hope that as a tool for reviewing performance, that it's something that you're comfortable with and and that you can sort of use with your peers and use in in your own practice to sort of, to have that feedback for one another to really improve together. So for example, when we were looking at cases in my own practice, we came across a flu shot because you just go through, you know, your morning and 
sort of click on a patient and have a look and have a look at the notes and the person that's whose case is being reviewed you, you do explain what was happening and you know we we opened up a flu shot case and went well this is boring but then actually you look at it and say well how can we actually improve our practice systems around flu shots how can we do that better are we asking the appropriate questions you know how are we monitoring patients post vaccination is the time appropriate is the setting appropriate and I think in that way, any case can really be valuable. And that's the value of random case analysis in general is the fact that it's relatively random. You don't know what's going to come up. But I think every case is valuable. And I think feedback's really valuable. My whole mantra is I can always do better. So it certainly looks at that. And, and I think what you're exploring there with the flu is about what systems could we put in place to try and set up a structure so that the random flu shot visit actually gets the added value. As I often say, the patient comes in with their agenda and I have my agenda, which is to add value so that it isn't just about the runny nose, but it turns into that quick health check that finds the opportunity to also give preventive health care advice and lifestyle, etc., isn't it? And it's how do you systematise that so that it becomes a routine part for every patient who comes into the practice gets the added value as well as the, the patient agenda? You know, I think that's something that I have personally missed in the setting of our pandemic is the usual practice of those sorts of things happening has been shifted a lot because we've had to make such frequent and constant changes to how we're delivering care or advice that we're giving to people or changing what we're doing in clinic to meet where we're currently at with the pandemic that a lot of the other stuff is sort of not prioritised as much. And I really sort of miss that you know, like seeing the unwell people and not being covered in PPE, um, you know, if you are seeing unwell people. And, you know, there's something that's been, I think, really lost in general practice in that process. Absolutely. It's no longer an easy consult when someone has an upper respiratory tract infection. (laughs) So, Mary Beth, it would seem to me that then the opportunity to use that sort of case analysis is, is would be quite fruitful in your current setting too, in terms of we know we've got patients that aren't really turning up for enough care, so to speak. So what is happening in the current consultation and how do we then amplify it a little bit so that people aren't too uncomfortable because we know people don't like changing too much so that we can, that you can really make a difference in the decreased need for the interventions yes absolutely so is that going to be your next work (laughs) I think there's enough work here to last me a really a very long time I think it's definitely the general practice work that is here is definitely interesting if you're interested in things like health equity and the tyranny of distance and the, the impact that has on health it's it's certainly it's certainly quite something I think we have to be really careful out here in terms of advice that we give to patients. You can't tell a patient living in White Cliffs that they need to eat fresh fruit and vegetables because the closest supermarket is 300 kilometers away. They can't get fresh fruit and vegetables unless they're growing it. And growing food out here is really difficult. It's really 
contingent on the elements, which we've had flooding yesterday, but we normally don't get rain. Uh, so it's, it's really, it's really tough. And soil contamination as well. Yes, yes. Frozen foods take on a totally different viewpoint, don't they? I mean, you, you have to look at what, what are the exciting things you can create with frozen foods. I mean, knowing that, I remember being told that really frozen foods have got a better nutritional value than a lot of the, in inverted commas, fresh fruit and vegetables that have been sitting on a shop bench for a couple of days. So I suppose we have to come at that front and then try and enable affordable food, isn't it? Yes, Rather than... sort of affordable and accessible for sure. And I mean, I can remember saying to someone who lives 400 kilometres north of here, oh, you know, I think my standard spiel for arthritis is try to get into some water and maybe do some pool walking. And then I thought, oh, actually, where is the closest pool? Oh, it's 400 kilometers away. Is there a body of water near you? No, we're in the desert. So I have to rethink, I have to rethink what I say. I have to rethink um, what I'm doing. And I have to think, is this going to be accessible for this patient? And um, how hard is it going to be for them to actually do what it is that I'm asking of them? It's it's also extraordinary because I think people here will travel really long distances to access care. You know, they'll, they'll travel a thousand kilometers to see a non-GP specialist if you tell them that that's what they have to do, which is, it's an extraordinary spirit. It's extraordinary that, that people will just sort of accept that and, and do that and, and won't even question that. But you have to limit the number of times that you ask someone to, to do that. So you do have to manage a lot more, I think, yourself. It's definitely always fun and interesting times working in rural and remote medicine, isn't there? So I'm, not, I'm mindful of the time and um, everybody's time here and that it's sort of five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And so I'm going to wrap us up. And we always finish with a resource of the week. So Mary Beth, do you want your AJGP article to be your recess of the week? Or do you have another exciting resource for us? I do actually. So I think this resource is really useful for thinking about changes related to COVID. So one of the resources that I've seen during my leadership courses and training was the Four Doors Model of Change. So it was developed by an Australian, his name is Jason Clark but you can Google it. So the four doors are, the door number one is things that we can do now that we can do before. So that's your business as usual. Door number two is things that you could never do before and you can't do now. So just disregard that door. Door number three is the door that a lot of people get hung up on and it's things that you were able to do before that you can't do now. And I think we can often get quite stuck in that type of thinking, oh, I can't do this or I can't do that because of COVID and, and I think, you know, just naturally we, we get stuck there. But door number four is what can we do now that we couldn't do before? So what has this change opened up in terms of opportunities? So, I mean, for me, the move to Broken Hill has opened up the ability to do more research, to be in a managerial role, to do more teaching than I, I'd ever done before, to look at new projects, to look at planning, to look at public health, you know, all those sorts of opportunities. I can't go shopping at the Westfield <laughs> because the nearest Westfield is 600 kilometers away, but there's there's wonderful trade-offs and, and that's everything that I, I get to do now. So I think maybe spending a little time thinking about the fourth door 
is useful. I love that analogy. You know, it's the whole like when one door closes, another one opens. Yeah, like there's, you know, usually some sort of psychological process that people need to go through to sort of open the door, walk through the door, close the door, and then see what's on the other side as well. So it's a really cool metaphor. But also, too, Ash, I 100% agree with you, but I was just thinking, too, it's the, it's the don't waste time on the one that is that might feel like psychologically is bothering you, door three, is like it actually is then becomes a barrier to you actually celebrating door four. Or it can be a lesson in wondering what, you know, where the, the creakiness of the door comes from <laughs> and what then lies in door four, you know, what can be more fulfilling as part of the next door rather than running into the next door that's available because it's open. Yeah, I like that. That's an, a nice different approach. There's that renewal thing of saying, I can't do it, but what could I do instead or what are the other opportunities that are available to me because of that? that's changed? We can get stuck on seasons like autumn and winter and spring and summer and, you know, the birth renewal cycles. There's all sorts of things that we could spend time on, isn't there? What's your resource of the week, Charlotte? Look, I'm going to be really boring and that's because I've just had a bit of a a focus with it and rejuvenation, which is health pathways. I just would really like to remind everybody about the, the wonderful resources that are on health pathways. Now, if you've gone to your health pathways before and it hasn't necessarily met your needs, go there again because it's one of those things that is constantly changing and evolving. In particular, there is an absolutely fabulous COVID you know, resources on every single set of the health pathways, which is, you know, if you are lucky enough to be in an area that's regionalised it for you, it really tells you exactly what resources you can access to manage your patients in the community, talking about your PPE, etc. But use the opportunity of going for COVID and looking at all the other ones that are there for you, because it's just great medicine. It's evidence-based. It's written by GPs. And I'm a great fan. (laughs) My resource is going to be completely unrelated to everything that we've been talked about. The way that I share my resources is I look at my most recently bookmarked websites. So the one that has come up for me that I thought would be interesting to share is an organization called Amaze, A-M-A-Z-E dot org dot A-U. And they're actually an organization which was made up of a group of parents who have children living with autism spectrum and so it's an organization focused on building understanding in community influencing policy change for autistic people and their families or supporters and provides some independent information and resources for individuals families professionals government and the wider community and if you haven't had a chance to check it out it's amazing it's got some really cool resources on there for parents families and health professionals awesome so at that point let's say farewell have a good day everybody and thank you so much mary beth for sharing with us some absolute gems and some really interesting tantalizing thoughts about taking the challenge to go somewhere different. Thank you.